John chapter 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father? I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not know him or see him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, because you will see me. Or so, sorry, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and he will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear is not mine but the fathers who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I do give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now that I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here.
The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids are invited to kids' church. Kelly? Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is the start of the passage for today from John's Gospel. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. If you weren't here a couple weeks ago, I had talked about how we spend from the new year until um, Easter all in one gospel. And I I advocate this to pastors for the reasons that I help and coach and do all this, because I think it helps us ground ourselves in in one picture of who Christ is, um, in the way in which it was sort of preserved originally, this memory of him who is God with us in the world, and each distinct image of it. Um, and, And many pastors, they ask me, how did your church begin practicing Lent if it didn't historically practice Lent? And one of the things I talk about also is that the Gospels are structured in a way that lends itself to Lent. And the three similar Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have this way in which Jesus is moving about doing the miraculous, which is sort of what we call in the season of Epiphany, revealing his glory. Then, he, Peter confesses the faith, uh, confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and what happens immediately after that is Jesus begins to set himself towards Jerusalem to death, towards opposition, and so too it is us, we walk that path as well. So if we're going to read the story, we can structure our time around the story as well, half, give or take, hearing from the miracles and the work that Christ does as he walks in the world, and half, give or take, walking with him to the cross. And having that take residency in our lives through, through um, some self-denial, pick up your cross and follow me, to recommitting ourselves to prayer or reading the scriptures. And so those things can take place in that so that we can um, see the light of Easter all the more brighter, that, that to walk through the darkness honestly, do not let your hearts be troubled, we can see the light of Christ all the more. And one of the things I said to my friend recently about this is, it, he said, how do you divide it up? There's so much good stuff. And I said, I lied. <laughs> I said, oh, it's easy because I just know it'll come back around. And instead, like today, I shove all of John 14 into one Sunday, um, which covers a lot of stuff. Um, uh, there's this temptation for, for me to think. And generally, I, I struggle. In the first half, I'm better at cutting stuff. In the latter half, it's like, there's so much good stuff, particularly with John. And John here is not speaking to the world anymore. He's speaking to his disciples. And so it is, I think, good for us to hear that. If you're also new here, I think it's good for us to hear that as it's read. There are very few spots in the world where we hear things read to us. But one of the major metaphors in the scripture for coming to faith is to hear it. Not to read it, but to hear it. People say, well, I want to follow along with my Bible while Jesse reads. I say, well, you can read in your Bible while I preach because hearing it read is more important than my preaching. Uh, That's a joke. Um, uh, 
Or not. Who said or not? Out. Um, I cast out the spirit of darkness. Um, and so, too, we, we, um, we heard that read today. And so I'm going to try and, try and move the teaching as best as I can, but I'll leave stuff unhit and, and hit and this, that, and the other. But that beginning, I think, is important for us to hear, is do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Believe in God. Believe also in me. First, it calls to mind what's been happening into the gospel so far, is that Jesus, in the previous scene, his heart was troubled as he was approaching his death. Jesus then tells at least two of his disciples that there's a betrayer in their midst. Your heart is troubled. But even then, Peter says, surely I will never deny you. And Jesus speaks to the community of disciples, you will deny me three times. And even to, to place ourselves in the place of the disciples, they've been spending time with this one whom they said earlier, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of life. The preservation of the Gospels is this preservation of people who lived and walked with Jesus and shared that memory with other people, of this one who walked with them so much so that they thought and believed it was God walking with them. They have a friend, a rabbi, a teacher like that. What he begins to do in all the Gospels, but in John 2, is that I'm going away. Your closest friend, the one whom you feel like is God walking with you in the flesh, so much so that that will become your confession later. Thomas, who asked the question, we don't know the way, when he sees the risen Lord, he's, he's later known as Doubting Thomas, which I don't think is fair, but... Um, uh, he says when he sees the Lord, he doesn't touch him. Uh, he does say that unless I touch, but when Jesus appears to him, he says, my Lord and my God. It brings about this confession of faith in the risen one. But even as this writing is preserved for us, do not let your hearts be troubled. If you stand up in a room of people, Start with the lines, do not let your hearts be troubled. Some percentage, over 50, less than 100, because there's contrarians like me who will resist everything you ever say. It's supposed to be funny. <laughs> um, uh, will say, my heart feels troubled. We live in a world of anxiety. We live in a world of competition nonstop. We live in a world of, of two weeks ago, um, uh, robocall threats that go through our school district. We live in a world with high tension. We live in a world with conflict zones throughout the world that we find that we know less and less about despite all the technology we wish, wish we could know more. Questions remain. Disciples today, as we gather and hear this teaching, do not let your hearts be troubled. I think if we're honest, we hear that we still exist in a world of trouble. So much so later in this, this teaching in the next chapter, Jesus will almost allude to that because the Spirit has come to you and they no longer see us, um, that the world will be more troubled by you people seem to have the residency of this one in your life. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. 
believe in God, believe also in me. And there's this, um, uh, this one is to say something which Jesus has been saying to us, that to see Jesus, to have him among you, which is will come up later, is to see and know God. The revelation of what Jesus is doing in their midst is what he has been sent to do as the son and emissary of God. You're to trust in the both of them, as if trusting in one is trusting in the other, too. This isn't a two-check list. Um, it's not believe in God, believe also in me. It's believing in God is believing in me. It's a calling into that type of relationship. Um, the Greek here is, is, can be translated with various commas in different places that it has different meanings, but I think all of them draw us further and further into this trusting into this one. And so we live in this era of hearts being troubled. The next phrase is a very common one to us. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would not have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I will come and take you to be with me, that where I am... Um, you may also be, you know the place to where I'm going. I should be reading, there's two different translations here. Um, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Does any, the, the old Tyndale translation translated this with mansions in it. Is anybody familiar with that? Uh, uh, which had uh, meant residency for Tyndale. Today it means uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous. Um, uh, so modern translations have thrown off mansions, although to be fair to Tyndale, when he translated mansions, he did not mean, um, what's the, what was the one, uh, cribs, I'm thinking lifestyles of rich and famous, previous generation, gotta stay hip, cribs, or pimp my ride, or whatever you want to say, cribs is still old, I know, yes, uh, uh, there's probably some YouTuber who does it now that I'm completely unaware of, and remain want to remain blissfully ignorant too which is definitely evidence that you're getting old um so too that this teaching this this believe in me believe also in me that the christ is going away sorry is that he's preparing a place for his disciples and that he will return to them now frederick dale bruner has this way in which he talks about the return in three different ways uh christ is uh rsvp which is not something clever enough that i would ever come up with um, but the Christ's return happens in, in sort of four ways. One, in that his resurrection is the preliminary of Christ's return. That is, he is going away into death. As we say in the creed, he descended to the dead. He returns in his resurrection and visits his disciples again. That's the second one. There are these visits which happen with Christ. These visits in the upper room, but they're visits that um, continue into the book of Acts, into the regular ministry of that, um, and, and I think what happens with us today is that we still receive these visits, most notably in the promised spot in which God comes to us, which is both um, communion and, and baptism, that God visits us again in those spots. The next of which we'll talk about in the, in the next teaching is that he promises his spirit will come and visit with them. That they, where he is, they may also be, will be maintained by this bond of love that is called the Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son and teaches and reminds them of all that he's done. Now, parousia, this is um, from a commentary, uh, would mean his final return. That when he comes to judge the living and the dead. Um, that when Christ's return in his fullness kingdom. 
And so often we read this and we only read it in one way. Now, there are two different teachings here, one which we'll go to later, but there's this um, give and take pull relationship between God is preparing a dwelling place. God is indwelling in you. God is making a place for us to be. God is asking us to abide in him now. So often this teaching has only been read in light of our um, resurrected lives. And I think that's true. But also true as this teaching goes on, we are to abide in that place. The Spirit will make a home in us. This isn't, and in John's Gospel, this is, is more of a theme than anywhere else. This isn't just a future day we await, but one as we believe in God and believe also in Jesus begins to inhabit us now. We begin to have existence in a different plane and in a different way. We'll be able to live, um, the phrase that we use here often is, is non-anxiously within the world. If we know, as Jesus will say later, do not be afraid because I have overcome the world, or one, as he says in this passage, my peace I give to you. And we see this as a peace that comes from God. How much more can we live with the state of things as they are than those around us? Now, I'm not saying this is easy. Believe in God. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I don't think it's always the easiest thing. But in those times in which I'm able to inhabit that spot, I find myself responding to the concerns, the anxieties. I find myself not letting my heart be troubled, my soul overspilled with those things. It's the opposite times as well, don't get me wrong. But Christ is calling us into that kind of life now. Thomas, uh, again, not fair to call him doubting Thomas all the time. We don't, uh, no, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Very good question. Somebody's going somewhere and you want to be with them. How would we know the way to where you are going? Jesus replies with another one of those most famous teachings, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except for me. If you really had known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you don't know him. You do know him and have seen him. That is in me, Christ is saying. This teaching, um, which is the sixth I am statement, I believe we have one left about the I am the vine, um, where we're called to abide, but this is the sixth one, is that I am the way, the truth, and the life. I remember in college this was a, a common, this is when people um, still thought the word truth meant something. Um, and so one of the ways in which we would talk about the faith is do you believe in truth? Is truth important to you? Well, Jesus comes and he proclaims that he's the truth. Um, today, I, I don't think it, it has that same tension. The joke early on when I used to talk about this passage is, um, uh, what would I say? Um, Christians have long majored in that, that Jesus is the truth, but they have forgotten to practice him as the way and the life. Um, that, I think, still speaks, but I don't think it speaks as much. I don't think we've majored in that this is truth the way we used to. 
But we've also forgotten this as way. I think this is one of these places where it helps to read these things and think about what they mean. To say that I am the way, and Jesus is answering Thomas's question not very well. <laughs> What's the path? I am the path. Um, he's giving him the answer, but Thomas was looking for a roadmap. Um, Jesus is saying, I am the entry point. But to say that I am the way is to say that there is a way from one place to another place. There's a right way to get from one place to another place. There's this way of walking and sort of being. The, the psalm for this morning um, named this too in a, uh, an interesting way. Um, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. I don't, the undivided heart line is, is a challenge, I think. Uh, we live with such divided hearts and loyalties today. Um, but point being is um, uh, that there is a way, there is a, a path in which we can walk. There's a direction and an aim. There's a place in which we are going. And what it can also apply is that there are other ways. But unfortunately, or fortunately in this gospel, they are wrong ways. Now that's something true and false aren't necessarily our world. But if you just say that there are right ways of walking this path and wrong ways of walking this path, that is controversial. Even among the most um, uh, conservative in the theological sense, Christians, when we talk about something and I say, oh, just, I just think that that church might be doing it wrong, they're like, you can't say that. Like, I'm not saying anything about their eternal salvation. Wrong is just a word that really triggers people today. Um, and yet, if there is a way, there are wrong ways. Jesus is calling us into this way. And he is the entry point of that way as we find um, life with him. Truth, which I said doesn't do as much today, but implies that there are lies. I am the truth in a world of lies. Now this one I think we see more and more often is that if we can think of truth as an opposition to lies, we might find something we can grab onto there. There are lies constantly being fed to us by an industry we call advertising. Um, and like we were fixing the gutters at the church the other day. I swear, yesterday at like I got home, I checked my junk mail, which I do for some weird reason, an offer for gutter repair. I didn't even have my phone with me. So like, what type of stalking is going on with these advertising? Um, uh, and then if you call them, you're like, I'm a church. They're like, oh, we don't, we don't help you, which is, yes, I did call spam number once. Anyways, um, we live in this world of lies in which we can believe about ourselves. We can tell lies to ourselves. We see other people believing lies. And Jesus says that I am the truth. And in this, and we've talked about this one, we find life. I am the life. And, and when Jesus talks about life in John's gospel, he means a, a quantitative and qualitatively different thing. It's one that lasts forever and in the present has a different weight to it. It is not bound in the same ways in the present. It has free ways of being now that aren't available um, otherwise. Um, but the last thing I'm going to say about this, the way of the truth and life, is that they are outside of us. I am the way, the truth, and the life is said of Christ. 
The path you have into yourself, which is the one the world's going to sell you, is find your own path in yourself to the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is outside of us and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what happens is, is if we throw off the external, internal weaker forms take its place. And it often leads to chaos and destruction. As a pastor, I've sat with people who say, I'm following my bliss, I'm living my inner heart, I'm doing my thing, and there is a pile of bodies along the way. Broken relationships, broken marriages, broken friendships, broken workplaces. So often, the more that we cast off that which is um, uh, outside of us and begin to rely on what is inside of us, we find ourselves not unsurprisingly gratifying our own wants. I think this is important to say that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Being external to us gives us something by which we can measure. Am I following this one who proclaims that they are way, they are truth in a world of lies, and they are life, if we want to do the opposite with that one, in a world bent on death? be outside of ourselves and that enables other things oh this is funny a yiddish proverb truth never dies but it lives a miserable life um i funny enough read that in a magazine yesterday but i just think it um to be a people of the truth is to be a part of people who never die Um, but jesus doesn't sugarcoat us in john's gospel the world as you live into this truth will push back and be opposition we live life and life to the full, but I do think it's comical to say truth never dies, but it lives a miserable life. No one comes to the Father except for, through me. That's um, one of those challenging things. I do think that this, there are two types of universalism, and this is not an argument for either type of universalism, but there's a universalism that says God is a mountain and we all find our way to the top. Christianity, I think, pretty explicitly rejects that one because there is no other way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But to say that this way in which Christ is modeled for us can be a way in which everybody who, who is some set looking towards Jesus in this way is being drawn into this, I think you can get there. Um, again, I wouldn't say that that's it, but I do think this type of teaching says, first off, the biblical God is not a mountain. Um, Uh, So the idea, I mean, whatever God you might say is a mountain, I just think it's a broken metaphor um, uh, to to reduce a living being to that. But um, there's this story from The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis that I think uh, captures this well. After wandering for some time looking for water to drink, Jill encounters a lion who is lying between her and a delicious babbling spree. Stream. Jill is terrified of the lion, but she's also dreadfully thirsty. The lion asks if she is thirsty, and she replies that she is dying of thirst. Then drink, the lion tells her. She is too afraid to venture near the lion and asks if he would mind leaving while she drinks. She quickly realizes the presumption of this request. She might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. 
Meanwhile, the sounds of the running water are making her more and more thirsty. Jill asks the lion if he will promise not to do anything to her if she comes near the stream and drinks. But the lion responds that he makes no promises. Driven nearly frantic with thirst, Jill comes a step nearer without noticing it. Then she asks the lion if he ever eats girls. The lion responds matter-of-factively, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and children, kings and empires, cities and realms. When Jill tells the lion that she dare not come and drink, the lion replies that she will die of thirst. Jill comes another step nearer and says, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. But the lion replies, there is no other stream. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who has ever seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she kept forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenches your thirst at once. For those unfamiliar, in the line which in the wardrobe, the lion is Jesus slash God. But there is no other stream in which this life flows. Part of what's captured, I think, in the Chronicles of Narnia is to come near to it is not to come near to the safest place you might ever imagine. It's to come near something that might touch you and transform you and make you into something else. The next teaching, uh, Jesus replied, uh, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Here Jesus teaches them, um, again, to look at him and see that the Father has been active in him. For Christians, there is this sense in which there is no God behind Jesus. When we look at Jesus, we see the will of the one who is sent in this world. Words I speak are not I own, but the Father lives in me and does his work through me. Just believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. Here Jesus again teaches of those miracles, those signs which he has done, those revelations, which in John's gospel, and on the other gospels too, but most clearly in John, are always pointing to reality beyond. I fed 5,000, but you need to understand that I am the bread of life. I speak of living water to the woman at the well, but I am the living stream which will come up within you. Believe because of those signs if you must, but believe in him, not because of the works. I truly tell you the truth. This is one of the most controversial teachings, I think, that has an easy answer, but it always feels too easy to me. I tell the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works because I am going to the Father. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it, so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, for anything, ask in my name, and I will do it. The first one is, is that the church often does not seem like the place that is doing greater works than what God has done. The easiest solution in reading this, which is the best one, but also still leaves me wanting some, is the idea in which Jesus was in one place. He called 12 disciples. He fed 5,000. That is, Jesus ascends to the Father and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is our, 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 our prayer there, the one who is near to that source. He is the one um, who uh, enables the disciples to go out and to feed more. Where the church has gone, poverty has declined. The church has gone, literacy has increased. 
which is another odd one. Where the church has gone, hospitals have flourished. Where the church has gone, uh, other things and all these other things have come along with it. Tom Holland, in his book Dominion, Tom Holland is not a Christian, but he talks about how um, the Christian has, Christianity has so formed the West that so many of its ideas we think are just normal. The idea of human rights comes out of this idea of the particular belief of the individual's worth, which is near and dear to Christianity. There is no science for human rights. You cannot weigh them. You cannot like, put them on a scale. You can try to develop logical arguments for it independent of God, which the West has tried to do to a great degree. But its seeds, as Holland points out in Dominion, is in Christianity. That such a concept, while it seems so natural to us, would come to flourish in the world is completely antithetical in the way the world has majoritarily run. Protect yourself, protect your kin, maybe protect your tribe. But the idea that there is universal dignity distinguished throughout the places. So anyways, the church is able to do that more in um, multiplication than Jesus was able to do, less than in quality. We are not able to surpass Jesus in individual works. I think one of the most evidential things is that is while we've had martyrs die, none of them have died for the sins of the world. Um, while we've had faithful deaths and faithful movements of, of um, people saying no more, the civil rights movement per se, they didn't take away the sins of the world. The second is asking for anything in my name and I will do it. Um, I think the emphasis properly needs to fall on in my name. If you've seen this one, if you know this one, pray in his name means to pray in the ways in which he would enable you to pray, to pray in the character of that one. Now, there's a thinker I like, Herbert McCabe, who says, you know, if you find yourself sitting down to pray and all you can think about is a Lamborghini, um, then pray for that so that God might actually be able to do something with your desires. Um, if you keep shielding off that, that what you might think is that shallow part of your life from God in prayer, then God's never going to hear it, and God is never going to be presented to that. Um, but secondarily, that that wouldn't be praying in the name exactly. Um, praying in the name is praying in the character of the one whose name you are praying. Um, this is the second longest teaching, or the second longer teaching uh, time is running out. Um, the paraclete, the advocate that I will send to you, this is the Holy Spirit, that, that as he goes, he sends something. This is this beautiful movement in which as Jesus is going away, he's providing something in the midst of it. He's providing the advocate in Greek, the paraclete. Um, uh, and so you'll see it in various English translations as advocate, comforter, counselor, helper, friend. I am sending another friend to be with you. Jesus will call his disciples friend at the end of this meal. Paraclete um, means, in the top one, to literally to come alongside. I am sending another to come alongside you. And there's a legal connection to it. I'm sending another one to be an advocate alongside of you. This is the warmth that exists in the believer's heart. 
This is what keeps us going, reminds us, as it says in that passage, of what he taught, reminds us of how he lived, brings his presence to us, dwells near and makes a home within us. Jesus, in this passage, will call it the Holy Spirit as well, but um, I spent a long time thinking this week, and, and so I invite you to do so this coming week, along the side of what does it mean to have one to come alongside us, to be an advocate for us in living this life and being this way. The rhythms of the Spirit, we'll talk more about that in the next passage. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything. Uh, but the Father sends the advocate, the Spirit, the friend, as my representative. That is the Holy Spirit. He will teach you everything and remind you of everything I have told you. As Jesus' absence grows in physical, as he goes to the Father, his, his presence becomes active, that there's this presence that becomes active in the life of the believer, continually reminding us of Jesus. Um, it's the member of the Trinity that points to another member of the Trinity. I'm living, leaving you my gift. This goes back to the beginning. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm leaving you this gift, this peace of mind and heart. And this peace I give as the world cannot give. In the Greek, or in um, culture, and in the, the culture that Jesus is in, peace often means the absence of conflict. So if you're at the Thanksgiving table and nobody is arguing, somebody might be tempted to say that this is peace because we're all just barely mentioning the thing that would cause the whole thing to blow up. Jesus, being a Jew and speaking Hebrew, peace is shalom. It's not the absence of conflict. It is the fullness and blessing of relationship with God. It's a, it's a gift, it's a greeting, it's a blessing. It's the resemblance of another reality. It is rest, it is being in a different place. So as the world gives peace, um, the Roman Empire uh, said that they had a long period of peace, uh, Pax Romana, um, that was mainly discovered by the threat of violence. That is how the world gives peace, is that it will always threaten you with violence if you violate it. We're going back to the dinner table, uh, the father will bang his hand on the table and everybody will be silent again. Look at this peace. That is not the peace in which Christ speaks of. It's a peace that comes from God and means this fullness and blessing that he is leaving with us. So do not be troubled. Don't let your hearts be overcome. And in the final teaching, um, he alludes back to what the challenge that's coming. I don't have much more time to talk because the ruler of this world approaches. This will lead to his cross. This will lead to his desolation. This will lead to his death. And so too as the disciples are animated by this another comforter, this friend, this one who comes alongside of us, so too the world will, will not always receive that gratefully. Christ goes to the prince of this world to drive him out, and it's, it's almost as if the disciples live through the death throes of that. 
the final fury it has as it's being extinguished. You can find this in the book of Revelation. You can find this in other places. But, but this idea is that as this one is driven out, it rebels all the harder in its final gasp. Why we need that peace, that advocate, that comforter to come alongside of us. We'll close with the quote on the back of the bulletin for today. As Augustine declares, the whole world from the height of the sky even to the depths of the earth is subject to the creator, not the deserter, to the savior, not to the slayer, to the deliverer, not to the subjugator, to the teacher, not to the deceiver. For the world was made through the world who became flesh in order to save the world. He now gives that flesh for the life of the world. To perceive Jesus' death on the cross, not as his defeat and death, but as victory that brings life, is to judge with right judgment. But that judgment can hardly be deduced from the spectacle of the crucified Jesus. It is judgment granted by seeing from the protective perspective of the advocate, the spirit, by the gospel itself. That the spirit enables us to see that moment of crucifixion glory, as this release of life and goodness. You don't get there on your own. It's the one who takes residency in the life of the believers and in the visits, uh, the resurrection, the visits, um, was RSV, <laughs> spirit, and um, uh, awaiting that parousia, that return, parousia. Uh, but let us pray. God, you end your teaching with come. Let us leave. There is more for you as to teach us in the next couple of chapters. But as you speak your disciples, you teach them what it means to walk in the way and the truth and the life. Do not let our hearts be troubled or overcome with fear but to have a peace that is not merely the absence of conflict, but goodness, blessing, life. And it's through your spirit that this light and life lives in us. And this week as we go forth, we invite you to come alongside us as your advocate, your paraclete, your counselor, your helper, your friend. And may that friend guide us 